We are here in the 11FS offices in London for episode 104 of Blockchain Insider, the weekly show dedicated to the news of where blockchain meets crypto and crypto meets institutions. Today we bring you Brazilian Bank, Tezos, and a billion dollars, IBM tries to make paper the past, and Swiss STOs. All this and more on today's Blockchain Insider. I'm your host, Simon Taylor, and joining me, as always, is a very, very warm Colin G. Platt. How is it there in your field near France? It, it is warm, as you have uh, a field near France. <laughs> it's in France, I believe. Well, I, I, you know, I know Brittany and the Bretons like to think of themselves as their own country, but it, it is still France here. Technically still France. Still a field? Still a field. I am going to Barcelona this week, um, so I'll be next to a beach. Wow, you, you are mixing up uh, Colin G. Platt from fields to beaches and so much more. Uh, that's that's the big news this week. But let's get on with the uh, the the other news that all the listeners came for. Uh, first story this week comes from SwissInfo.com, and the Swiss Central Bank uh, has asked to issue stock exchange digital currency. Is the headline here? So, stock exchange uh, operator Six Group revealed that traders on its fourth coming SDX platform would be able to swap cash for a new digital token. To facilitate this, SDX would accept CHF payments from member banks in central bank money and issue an equivalent tokenized CHF in the SDX. For Six Group, who are owned by a consortium of member banks, the advantage of an SNB-issued stablecoin is pretty clear. The involvement of the central bank would eliminate the risk of uh, a pot of currencies underpinning the token going bust, and stablecoin holders would therefore be certain that they want to cash out with the token and be there. Um, this all seems relatively sensible, Colin. Um, it's, uh, but is this really a stablecoin, or is this actually just tokenized central bank money? Is, is there a subtle difference there that we need to be mindful of? I, I think the subtle difference that needs to be pointed out is that this title is really horrible. I think it is the Swiss central bank has been asked to issue uh, stock exchange digital currency. Um, so uh, reading through this, the SNB, the Swiss national bank, um, has been suggested by the SIX group, which runs the exchange as well as the uh, Swiss payment systems. Um, and if you ever travel around big swathes of Europe, um, specifically in the Benelux and, and Switzerland and, and Germany, you'll see that they, they run a lot of like their equivalent of MasterCard payment systems as well. Um, so they're, they're quite prevalent everywhere. Um, I, I, as far as I understand, yeah, I mean, this isn't miles away from like in the UK, we have the protected payment system that sits behind the London Stock Exchange, the London Clearinghouse, um, which is essentially uh, pre-funded uh, sterling or dollars or euros, which can be moved from clearing banks into accounts that are essentially topping up credit at the London Stock Exchange and, and related clearinghouses and things. Um, this just happens to like throw a token in the front of it. So it's not a million miles away from how things operate right now. Um, I just understand that it's it's to be on their new digital exchange. Mm. Interesting one. I guess um, six have been at the forefront with SDX for some time. Um, SDX is is really interesting because it uses, uh, of course, friend of the show and, and um, show sponsor R3's quarter platform. Um, but we've seen a number of the uh, the exchanges sort of look at maybe doing something with, uh, you know, the New York Stock Exchange doing uh, backed as a spin out and doing Bitcoin futures potentially. Uh, we've seen CME Group and uh, the CBO do Bitcoin futures. Six seem to be going into the security token space a bit more seriously here, and, and there's an active development. How do you view this? Uh, 
if you're if you're a bank that operates uh, across you know, Swiss securities or through the Swiss market and CHF, how, how do you view this? Is this a, a, a long term interesting play, or is this sort of more on the PR side for you? I I think something in between. Um, so what's unclear to me is um, if everything remains within a platform, so within SDX, I, I don't know why they need a, a token at all, um, because essentially it'll just be managed inside of there. If people are allowed to move it out, yeah, okay, it could be more interesting. Um, but to the extent that these things are going to be chucked back and forth outside of uh, a regulated exchange venue or regulated clearinghouse more specifically, um, it could possibly make sense, but if it's just staying inside those boundaries, why not just set up a, a normal credit system and just run books and records? Well, so I think what's interesting is um, I come back to uh, Richard Brown's point of that solving the I need to know what I see is the same as what you see problem. Um, if I'm running books and records, the exchange is running books and records, you're running books and records. I know you're all holding books and records, but I don't know that they're the same. If you have a token, I no longer have that token. And if I have a token, you no longer have that token. So that digital scarcity thing, there's something quite nice about that. Um, now, I take your point. Could Six just run that on behalf of all the members and then we all just use them as the golden source? Potentially. Uh, but I think the way that that's been done in the past has always come across issues because people just go, well, let's just use a Swift payment. And then you get into all of the challenges of Swift payments. Sure. Um, and, and that kind of comes down to the fine, finer points of how they actually run these things. If they're going to be running the SDX in a way that is more akin with um, how we're actually treating settlements in a cryptocurrency uh, exchange, um, more or less they're going to be holding all the cards. So whether there's a token or not behind it, um, kind of whatever the SIX tells you goes in the same way that if you go trade on Binance, whatever Binance tells you goes. You can get upset and say, oh, I thought I had $100 worth of credit. And they say, sorry, you've only got 90 um, And you can try to take them to court if the, the sum is large enough. Um, but that would require you to run your own books and records or at least have some kind of proof that the, the 100 number that you came up with um, is more valid than the 90 that they came up with. And you're kind of pushing that ball uphill. And unless you do every single trade through a blockchain, through a decentralized exchange, which you may very well do, um, but as we've seen you know, with, the, the, with Binance, it's only about 100 people a day that use that thing compared with the hundreds of thousands that use Binance main exchange. Completely. I guess, though, where does this sit given open access? And it might be worth explaining what open access is and what are the, a lot of the FMIs are committed to there. Uh, in short, um, although I'll have to check this, it's in Switzerland, so I don't know that it necessarily applies. Um, so open access is the notion that uh, within the European Union, um, I can tr make a trade in, um, in Germany um, on Deutsche Börse and I can settle that in France. Um, through a clearinghouse there or pick where I want to go. Um, because this is technologically different, um, I, I don't know if they can necessarily push that through, especially given that it's crossing into uh, a, from a non-EU jurisdiction into the EU or elsewhere. Interesting stuff. All right, well, moving on to banks uh, doing things. Uh, story comes from Bloomberg.com. Uh, this uh, headline hopefully is a bit more to your taste, uh, Colin, because it hopefully describes what actually happened. Uh, Brazil's BTG Pactual plans a $1 billion crypto token partnership. So uh, Banco 
BTG Pactual, Latin America's biggest standalone investment bank, has teamed up with Dubai asset manager Dalma Capital to sell more than a billion dollars worth of so-called security tokens. Uh, they sold tokens backed by distressed real estate assets in Brazil earlier this year uh, for its first foray into digital asset. And now the firm's exploring how tokens might uh, affect capital markets. Uh, BTG partner Andre Portilio was quoted saying, when we look at capital markets, we notice that even with all of the recent technological advancements, we still have infrastructure that was designed for an analog local world. It's our job not only to understand how new technologies can change the market, but also, and foremost, lead the process. Uh, BTG and Dalma plan to issue all of those tokens on the Tezos blockchain. Um, of course, Tezos has been around for quite some time. Uh, I guess you know, it does compete with a lot of the sort of quote, uh, 2.0 blockchains out there. You've got uh, Ethereum's probably the most well-known, um, but there are the likes of uh, Definity, there's, uh, there's EOS, there are many others, and Tezos are often uh, in that conversation. You don't hear them come up as, as often in the, in the sort of bank-driven announcements. Uh, I thought that was interesting because you, you, they've, uh, they've been around. There was quite some uh, press controversy around them sort of 18 months ago, um, but actually that seems to have died down and they seem to have focused on you know, slowly delivering against uh, against what they were asked to do and uh, d delivering real working code. Uh, I, I partially agree with that last statement. I mean, I, I recall reading the white paper and they had kind of this whole, like, if we raise this amount of money, I think currently in their cycle, according to their white paper, they're supposed to negotiate a Tezos as like a reserve currency of at least one country. Um, so, yes, they're delivering something, and um, depending on where you stand on the spectrum, it's either the greatest thing ever or uh, it's not fit for purpose. It is cool to see that um, you know banks are looking at new technologies and, and other ways of doing things. Um, I, I'm still not a big buyer of tokenization on real estate um, because ultimately you run up against this problem that even if you've tokenized it and given yourself this idea that what you have is more liquid, um, you're ultimately going to come to the point where liquidity only really matters when you can liquidate and get some or part of, or all of what you own on the underlying. Yeah. And as we've seen with the financial crisis, that uh, that, that doesn't exactly happen. Um, so although I may own a $100 slice of a house in Ohio um, by virtue of my CDO, uh, if that house is actually no longer worth that or I only own a chopped up piece of rent for it, it doesn't mean that I actually own that house. Um, yeah. Yeah, I own something that represents uh, a claim on a contract that owns that ultimately several steps removed. Somebody somewhere else actually owns that thing, and that value may have changed. So it doesn't mean I'm going to get my money back if I go to a platform. And what? How? How liquid is that platform, and can it pay me back if I want to get out? So fractionalization is one of those use cases that's brought up. But the other one is um, that kind of um, secondary market outside of fractionalization, the idea that uh, if I've invested in a fund, I may be able to get in or out of that fund rather than being locked in for five, seven or 10 years, as, as you see with, with real estate sometimes, which is you know, seen as uh, something that's uh, hugely desirable for a fund manager because they can attract liquidity and investors that they other, and an investor pool that they otherwise couldn't. Um, but, but as you're saying, that, that is there a downside to that as well outside of the fractionalization? Piece. Yeah, I mean, the fractionalization is one thing, but just the general liquidity, the underlying, it's kind of like, and I don't have a better analogy, so bear with me on this one. It's kind of like saying, well, you can get in a plane and the plane goes 600 miles an hour between London and Singapore, which is great. But if you want to take that same plane to go from, you know, Heathrow Airport to Shoreditch, it's not overly efficient. Um, you can't just jump out any step along that way. And if you need to sell, um, you know, a penthouse in the Empire State Building, 
the fact that it's on a token doesn't help me sell that thing any quicker. Unless I can find somebody in the other hand that wants to own a fraction of a penthouse on the top of an Empire State Building, I, I can't get out faster. And that's up to the market. And I have no idea what that market's going to look like when I actually need that money. So this interesting thing about the nature of speculation and, and entrepreneurship, right, is that uh, you don't know if that market's there. Uh, and a lot of people are hoping if you build it, they will come. I mean, famously, uh, Harbour has been out there for quite some time. Um, for, and they've got investment from Andreessen Horowitz. And you know, I've heard from a number of uh, the sort of real estate folks in the world. That's particularly interesting to them. And they're actually using the Ethereum blockchain and creating ERC-20 tokens. Uh, and similarly, like when I speak to people in the fund management space um, on, in real estate, they're really excited by the concept that they do think that they could attract investors. They do think there'd be value in a secondary market. But then, of course, they do. I think your point is is that remains to be proven. And so how do you, how do you test and learn and, and see if the market demand is there uh, on both sides of the trade, not just the buy, but the sell and the liquidity. Yeah, and, and on an ongoing basis. And as we've seen in the most liquid markets in the world, including euro dollars, uh, which are a multi-trillion dollar market, that when things dry up, things just dry up. And banks like um, you know Barclays cannot borrow dollars. Um, and you know if they can't, do you really think we're going to be able to sell a fraction of a, of a penthouse uh, in similar market conditions or worse? Um, I mean, look, so you mentioned Harbor. The other one there was news on was Polymath. Um, so they just announced last week that they're going to be laying off a large chunk of their team. And in their real estate securities tokens, they they only had of the dozen or so projects out there, only at two or three of them that had more than five investors in them. It's early days. I'm just questioning whether you can actually ever get to that critical mass without fundamentally changing the underlying and saying, um, we have some central bank that is willing to buy and sell at any cost uh, against small pieces of a house. I think that's an interesting point that you raise. I mean, uh, if if a central bank or uh, something of that sort of scale were to stand behind it, um, then you you really do create a different level of confidence in the market. Uh, and it does seem to come back to central banks quite often. Um, and let's not forget, a couple of weeks ago, Mark Carney, uh, the governor of the Bank of England, gave a speech about looking at how central banks can be innovative and, and help fintechs. This might be a way to do that because it's not as simple as um, some of the crowdfunding platforms that you saw, um, say, Crowdcube, right? You've got these crowdfunding platforms where consumers can invest in securities of uh, uh, unlisted companies, early companies, and get get into early venture deals. And Crowdcube sort of does that on somebody's behalf because that market is illiquid. So if I invest in something on Crowdcube, I'm in that until it has a, a liquidity event. That would be relatively easy to do today in real estate without a token. Uh, the secondary market would probably need some way to create an ecosystem of, of banks and buyers and sellers behind the scenes. And your point is, if I've understood it correctly, is sure, but they'd also need a central bank standing behind them to make sure that it, that the claims could be redeemed and that there's an environment in which this uh, real estate market was fully supported. So I wonder if there's something between those two points, between where Mark Carney's talking about encouraging uh, looking at fintechs to connect to central banks and go have a conversation with them, and uh, kind of where uh, we're seeing the, uh, the the real estate blockchains sort of move towards. I'm entirely speculating. I don't know if there is, but it would be interesting to consider. Yeah, I, I just don't think that they're going to want to make TARP an ongoing thing. <laughs> fair point fair point i was thinking more about access to central bank clearing but never mind oh you know clearing's clearing's fine but unless the central banks want to you know go buy part of that 
uh, Manhattan penthouse uh, in the Empire State Building because it's got a token on it and you want to sell it, I, I, I just don't see that happening. I mean, I, I, I respect the idea of coming up with markets on these things. I just don't know that it's going to evolve to the same level of the people trying to work on it. Well, we'll see. Um, we've, we'll see. Uh, we've got to respect them for, for giving it a go. Um, Love a try. Uh, speaking of triers, um, it's time to try out our ad read. Um, so uh, this week's ad read, of course, comes to you from our good friends at R3. Um, it's been a big year for R3, um, the software firm behind Corda. Um, Corda is uh, fast becoming a standard in enterprise blockchain technology because as an out-of-the-box blockchain platform built specifically for business, uh, it comes in two versions. One, open source, and two, enterprise. Both are completely interoperable and compatible, and you can get started on Corda open source and easily migrate to enterprise as your business requirements evolve. Uh, Corda platform offers truly the best of both worlds, and it's backed by over 200 application builders and consumers. You can download uh, Corda open source on GitHub or visit r3.com to download uh, enterprise, uh, Corda Enterprise on a trial basis. All right, on with the show. The next story uh, comes from AFR.com, and the headline reads, Banks, IBM, and Center Group uh, join forces to overhaul bank guarantees. So three of the country's big four banks uh, have teamed up with IBM uh, to overhaul a paper-based bank guarantee process, building a blockchain platform that will significantly speed up agreements. Apparently, the technology would reduce the average time for a bank guarantee to be processed from about a month to just a day. Um, IBM Australia uh, and New New Zealand head of blockchain Rupert Colchester said the digital supply blockchain project between IBM and shipping giant Maersk had similar characteristics and in 18 months there were more than 50% of the world's containers running on it. That last stat is super interesting. Um, how, we'll come back to that point. Um, bank guarantees, reducing paper, um, moving processes from uh, a month to a day, generally supportive of all of that sort of stuff. But um, I wonder what role um, the the underlying sort of blockchains playing here and how much of this is just an, an excuse to upgrade the tech they were using. Uh, yeah, so um, as I understood it, what they're trying to do is like, um, if somebody says I want to rent um, a, a stall or, or rent a, a storefront inside of a, inside of a mall or something in Sydney, um, I, I need a bank to basically say, look, if, if Colin can't pay for this, uh, we'll pay we'll pay it on his behalf, and it's kind of just an insurance for them. Um, but of course, they they want to see the that I'm good for it, that I haven't asked for another bank from for that, or that I don't have a thousand other ones out there. Um, I, I guess this is just a way for um, the the banks, um, the four Australian banks here, Australian and New Zealand banks, uh, to team up and say, look, we can share our data with each other. Uh, there's lots of ways to do this. Um, as you say, it could be an upgrade, um, or they could actually need to put that in there, or maybe they're trying to build something that is uh, allows payments to be made through that on, as top. Um, as with all of these things, I mean, that vision only really starts to make sense if you have that entire supply chain in it. Um, and even if you have the biggest banks in Australia on board, you really need to have... Um, everything else on top of it to kind of get to that vision. So in the meantime, um, would definitely add that question in there to say, like, is it not possible to deliver what we want to do, which is actually a, a legitimate thing? How do banks share data on somebody trying to get a guarantee to rent something um, in the most efficient way possible? Maybe they've come across that and legitimately said, you need this in there or, or future proofing. Um, but maybe they just need those API connections to start setting that up and then 
in five years' time, if there's uh, ways to get customers to pay uh, with you know a cryptocurrency, maybe it starts make sense to hook everything up together. This feels like good old bank, uh, good old fashioned bank infrastructure moves that are very very sensible. Um, you know, a number of countries have um, check clearing and um, check. Uh, image capture, deposit schemes, and so on. Uh, the UK has uh, looked at implementing some of the similarly where uh, all checks are captured digitally now in the UK and then um, sort of deposited through through a central store. Um, now, that was trying to coordinate all of those banks. If, if you talk to anybody that's worked behind the scenes on that initiative, coordinating all of those banks to integrate all of that stuff to their existing processes, operations, branches, all of that kind of stuff, that was the hard part. It was the bank coordination and the integration to their systems. It wasn't the fact that there was a, an ability to capture this piece of paper or remove the piece of paper entirely. And, and actually, the bottleneck is not where you think it is. The bottleneck isn't coming up with the use case. The bottleneck isn't necessarily uh, getting banks to agree it's a good idea. It's getting them to actually execute on it and, and put, push the thing live. Yeah. And I think that's probably the, the big thing in here. And hey, look, you know, um, as much as we can question the, the technology choices, if they're, these banks are actually getting together and saying, hey, let's try to create a solution for Center Group, which sounds like their client in this case, um, maybe, maybe. Um, but you just kind of need to open up before you kind of get into anything that really makes it a game changer. So what do you think of this stat about um, more than 50% of the world's containers are running on it? I, I wanna, I've been Googling as, as we were talking, and I, I can't find more citations for that. Uh, pretty interesting stat if it's true. Um, Maersk, of course, the, the, the shipping giant and trade finance has been something has been talked around for quite some time as a key use case for blockchain and DLT. Um, is, do you think there's, there's real adoption coming there, or do we, do we need to uh, foreshadow this one and come back to it? Uh, foreshadow this one and come back to it. I, I suspect um, very much this will be um, Maersk plus their partners say, yeah, yeah, we're using this thing and, and we account for 50% of the world's containers. And yeah, maybe there is somebody that's tied into the system and they're they're backfilling data into it. Um, but I, I would really be surprised if it was that key chunk in the process. Interesting stuff. I mean, uh, if you are listening and you know anything about this from my school, the IBM site, do get in touch, uh, email uh, podcasts at 11fs.com or simon at 11fs.com because I'd love to know more. Uh, already, and then the uh, the last main story this week comes from Reuters.com. Digital currency operators must comply with rules, uh, Bank of Japan has said. So the uh, Bank of Japan uh, deputy governor has come out to say that digital platform operators such as Facebook planning to launch new digital cryptocurrencies called Libra must comply with regulations on money laundering and risk management. Uh, they also said that the Bank of Japan had no plans to issue digital currencies for now, partly due to uncertainty over how it affects conventional commercial banking. He said if central bank uh, digital currencies replace private deposits, that could erode commercial banks' credit channels and have a negative impact on the economy. I think there's, there's two key points here. One, no surprise that pretty much every regulator in the world has said, if you are going to do something with money and currency, you should try and prevent financial crime from happening. Um, there are laws around that, there are rules around it, and, and we've seen a pretty consistent message globally on that front. Um, but then the second piece here around uh, the impact on the economy, uh, again, shout out to Bank of England Working Paper 605, which was the first to really um, study this. 
if you did suddenly have everybody holding central bank money or walking around with cash and there were no bank deposits anymore, banks couldn't lend and therefore credit creation and money supply would, would reduce in the economy, which is generally considered by economists to be a bad thing. Yeah, a <laughs> very bad thing. Like, uh, you know, end of, end of the financial system bad. Um, yeah, I, I think um, Deputy Governor um, Amamiya has, has really kind of understood this and it's like, yeah, we can we can talk about how backward you know people in in Europe and the U.S. have been for sounding the alarm on this, um, but it's this is definitely the the heart of the issue. Transferring a, a good chunk of and, and I've just spent all day writing a very long review of of the Libra Reserve and some problems that could cause. Uh, things are massive in this, and you know, like the the anti money laundering stuff is uh, is a concern. But, uh, you know, the, the chance of creating entirely new systems to destroy uh, the euro currency markets or money markets is probably not something that people are just going to go, yeah, let's try it out and figure it out when we get there. Um, so this is, uh, you know, as, as I brought up earlier with uh, real estate, like going through and doing these things have massive implications, especially if we start to talk about things the size of comparable, if not larger, I guess, um, to Chinese like Alipay and Tencent Pay. Um, the, the Chinese, what they did in the end is they just said, look, you're not going to earn any interest on this and it's all going to sit in a central bank account. How are you going to do that with Libra when you're on four different central banks and it's running in a different different country, likely in the euro dollar system, unless you really sit on everybody and you say, look, you are all going to jail if you don't do this correctly. And I think that that's the conversation we're going to get to if they decide to go outside of it. I don't think they will because the governments have a pretty big stick over companies like Facebook. Indeed. Well, um, there is a question about how effective that stick has been. Um, and I think there's a, there's a lot of frustration in, in a lot of quarters about that. Um, but we'll, we'll see if, uh, if this is intentional from Facebook to create a conversation, you know, to uh, almost a, a, a bluff in poker whereby they've said, we're going to do this. And then actually what they intend is to actually partner with the central banks um, and uh, scare them into doing it. But that would be a strange way to approach central banks. There has been some speculation in... And um, we'd, we'd come straight back into the middle of this problem that, that Deputy Governor Mamea has said is like, we don't want to do it. <laughs> so I, I think at the end of the day, I mean, it, it either goes down the path of, look, here's a way to do it in a very mitigated scale where you make zero money on it and we figure out how to manage this into the system, or they just end up proving the, the genius behind cryptocurrencies that aren't backed by anything. And we go, oh, maybe that's why stable coins weren't a good idea in the first place. Indeed. I guess um, it, it, what's going to be interesting with this is as uh, people sort of learn the economics on it, will we start to see different solutions come up? Um, I mean, you often say that um, MakerDAO is really, really interesting, if not really, really dangerous. Um, it, it's both of those things. As people innovate around those concepts, will we start to see something genuinely novel on an economics, not just a technology standpoint? And I think that's where the interest is and the excitement is, is if you did, then we'd, we'd really have something, and there's a lot to learn. Indeed. Alrighty. Stories we did not have time to cover. Uh, Coindesk.com, Arrington-backed crypto loans firm to accept Telegram token as collateral. Michael Arrington is uh, putting himself out there for sure. Uh, FXStreet.com, Venezuela's president tells uh, leading bank to start accepting the country's cryptocurrency, the Petro. Interesting. Um, Coindesk.com, Facebook's David Marcus, Libra crypto users won't have to trust us. Um, Interesting that you said, don't worry, you don't have to trust us. That's um, strange, strange headline, but uh, I, I take the point. It was an interesting blog as well. Uh, sort of, uh, I guess a lot of people instantly reacted by saying, we don't trust this Facebook. So uh, good that they're getting out there. All right, now it's time for Twitter of the Week. 
tweet, 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 tweet. It's the tweet of the week. Tweet of the week. This week's tweet of the week comes from Suzu, and it reads. Wow. Singapore's tax authority, IRAS, proposes to exempt all usage of cryptocurrency as a medium of exchange from goods and service tax. Uh, examples of digital payment tokens are Bitcoin, Ethereum, Litecoin, Dash, Monero, Ripple, and Zcash. Uh, that's also quoting a Coindesk article. Wow. Um, I haven't had a chance to go do my due diligence on this one, but that's an interesting proposal, especially given the uh, the IRS are rumoured to be updating their uh, proposals in the not-too-distant future. Um, so uh, Singapore's always been considered quite a low-tax environment. Uh, maybe this is uh, maybe this is kind of just following in the footsteps of that. Um, but uh, what are your thoughts on this one, Colin? Uh, yeah, I, I guess it comes back to like how often are people actually using cryptocurrencies as payments, especially in Singapore? Um, I, I'm going to guess that, yeah, while this sounds cool, uh, it probably doesn't affect that many transactions on a monetary basis. Um, and I know in, in the U.S., the, what you're referring to with the IRS is mostly like um, the problem being if I want to make a $5 transaction, it's just not worth it to calculate um, how much money I made or lost to my Bitcoin before making that uh, payment. Um, I guess for simplicity's sake, uh, it's good, and maybe that'll prompt more people to use it. But most people I've talked to who don't make payments in cryptocurrency don't do it because of tax calculations. It's just one of those things. If they've made that decision, uh, they just complain about having to do that if they report their taxes at all. It is interesting. The, the whole tax situation around crypto is something that uh, has, has been a, a consistent um, kind of question. There's been a lot of ambiguity. Most major tax jurisdictions have you know, kind of uh, released some guidance on it, um, but it still seems somewhat ambiguous as the whole crypto world starts to evolve and, and increasingly uh, kind of difficult to report um, if you've got to file your own tax returns especially. Uh, so it's... Um, it's one of those things where I think that the tax conversation will run and run and run for sure. Alrighty, um, Colin, before we let our listeners go, I had the uh, great opportunity to chat with Matthew Pollard, who's uh, founder of Archax uh, back at Money 2020 in Amsterdam. So uh, let's head to that interview now. So here on Blockchain Insider, of course, I am still Simon Taylor, and it's my pleasure to be joined by Matthew Pollard, who's the co-founder of Archax. How are you doing, Matthew? I am doing extremely well. Thank you for having me. Oh, you're welcome. It feels overdue. It feels like you're part of the family that never did join us yeah, on the show yet. So, exactly. um, what's going on, man? Uh, tell us a bit about your background. Sure. And tell us, because uh, you came from the uh, hedge fund world and I finance did, and that for sort of my stuff. Sins. You're wearing a suit, there are shoes, they look black, they're not brown. They're you shiny. know the rules of the city. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely right. So, I set up Archax uh, just over a year ago. And before that, I'd spent 10 years on the buy side. And that was across various hedge funds. And before that, I trained as a chartered accountant at Deloitte. And before that, I got a degree in computer science. So I am cool two ways. <laughs> You've got all of the cool from all of the angles. And, and that's an interesting place to be, uh, I guess, looking at the world of digital assets from, given you came from that world. Yeah, yeah. And uh, the buy side especially, I always find really interesting as a... Uh, as a potential beneficiary of digital assets. But like, let's step back. Like, what, what do you see a digital asset being, meaning, and representing for the world of finance? Like, what, what drew you to it? What made you think this thing could make a yeah. difference to my day job? Yeah. So the, the kind of seed of me wanting to make the leap over into the world of digital 
was at the last place I was at. I was the CFO there, and I was also responsible for running the family office from a non-investment point of view. And the family office requested we get ex exposure to digital assets for them. Yes. And so we did through um, a couple of tracker products that the uh, fund could custody. And then also we set up a fund. And going through the process of setting up a fund, we realized how um, hard it would be for an institution to properly get access to digital assets based on the current market infrastructure. Yes. So that set the seed. We decided to set up Archax to build a venue that would allow institution, regulated institutions like ours to onboard and trade digital assets. And back then, the, the idea was for Bitcoin and security tokens. And the idea is still that, but with a focus on security tokens for now, because we're going after our regulations with the FCA. So I think, um, I think the most exciting thing is uh, institutions, <laughs> from a Bitcoin point of view, they want to get access to this new asset class. They like the volatility. They like that it's an emerging market. And from an institutional point of view, from a market maker point of view, from a hedge fund point of view, emerging markets are where there's a lot of alpha. There's yeah. a lot of money to be made. And there aren't a lot of markets with real alpha left, especially yeah. given beta has now overtaken Absolutely. alpha products. And if everything goes towards beta, yeah. then what's the point? What's in, left? Yeah. How do we find this yield? How do we find this alpha? So I think, um, you know, back when I used to work for a, a fund of hedge funds, you'd see lots of quantitative funds setting up their algorithms and their servers in emerging market stock exchanges to try and capture that alpha before it gets arbitraged away. Yeah. The very same thing has happened with Bitcoin. Over the last few years, you've seen high-frequency funds and, and institutional names like Two Sigma and others realize that cross-exchange arbitrage is a very, very good way to make money. Yes. So I think that, uh, that same mindset will happen with security tokens and digital securities. All right, so let's define security tokens, like security. Yeah. We know those. We do. Shares, bonds, yeah. like good old securities. Good old securities. You can buy them from your local broker. It's They're probably in your pension fund. We yeah. know what a security is. Yeah. Security token, what's one of them? Very, very similar, but the technology used to deliver that security is distributed ledger technology. It's, you still have a legally enforceable right to the underlying. It's still structured in a proper way. It's still regulated. But the, uh, the very existence and issuance of this security, of this unit, is, is, is powered by distributed ledger technology. And so what's different about it? What does that give me that I didn't have before? It gives you, uh, from an issuer point of view, it gives you the ability to create issue and, uh, and the ongoing lifecycle management of this security in the, in the example of equity in, in a capital stack. It's a very efficient way of doing things on an issuance basis, but also around the lifecycle for secondary trading, for corporate governance, for, for, for distribution of dividends, um, and other bits so and all like of those that. actions around it. So yeah. if it was a share, if yeah. I had a corporate action yeah. like a dividend, like yeah. a like a change of board member or whatever, yeah. then that becomes way cheaper, way faster. Oh. Which is what a lot of people looked at DLT for originally yeah. was give me the efficiency. Yeah. But actually, what they started doing was doing their paper process on DLT, yeah. which sort of reminds me when they started building iron bridges. They built them the way they were used to build uh, kind of brick bridges yes, with sure. arches. Sure, sure. And actually. When you build an iron bridge the way you would build a brick bridge, it's weaker than the brick. Okay, yeah, and yeah, yeah. So by using a new technology to do an old process, you're not actually getting a benefit. Right. With a token, I can start to rethink my process because yeah. everybody can see the updates immediately. Yep. 
Um, and we don't have to worry about reconciliation because yeah. we all know where the token is. We all know the yeah. state of it. So the action can just kind of cascade through. So it's kind of, kind of compelling. So these security tokens, what, what actually is it? Let's, let's drill that down because I know what a, 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 share, a stock certificate looks yep. like. Yep. Is a token a different thing? So, uh, so I, when I talk about security tokens, I think of regulated instruments, whether it be equity or debt. I view it as a unit uh, created using a blockchain protocol, whether it's Ethereum or uh, R3 Corda or a Bitcoin sidechain or Stellar or whatever. But it's a it's a it's a unit of ownership. It's a it's a legally enforceable unit of ownership. Um, but there is still a paper registration, or so the. For companies that go through the primary issuance process of equity, in Europe at least, there is a uh, central registrar that, that, that is responsible for the master books and records of the issuance in Europe, and in the US it's, uh, it's the DTCC that provides that kind of service. So the, the uh, fractionalized unit of ownership exists on a blockchain, and that is a very good way to manage a cap table, to manage dividends, to manage distributions and voting. So effectively all of my management moves to DLT yes. and digital, but there's still that paper registry to be backwardly compatible with the legal system because of the underlying country. 100%, and that's, and that's what this very innovative space has to deal with. We have the law as it stands and the things that have to be done to, to comply with existing rules and regs, and then we've got the innovative side of the distributed ledger technology. And as it stands at the moment, you still have to talk to the old world because it's the law, uh, but I'd be interested to see how this space evolves over the next two, three, four, five years. Well, so you're part of the Global Digital Finance Security Token Working Group. Yep. What challenges are in front of security tokens that felt the need to become a chair of a working group in a global organization uh, that's going to go look at this security token subject? Absolutely. So I, I was given the opportunity. I grabbed it with both hands. It was, it, it was a chance for me as a founder of Archax to uh, get the get input from all the members of the Security Token Working Group into the document. We have over 80 people, everybody's got an opinion, everybody wants to contribute. We have people from all around the world with an especially strong presence in the US. So the, the US has their way of doing it, Europe has their way of doing it. Uh, we've got uh, also an Asian presence as well and, and it was, it was uh, fantastic. We are through the initial consultation and the public consultation will be out sometime in June. And it was, it was great but it is, it is a, it is a nascent space and people are wrestling with how much innovation they can cram into the issuance of equity and debt using distributed ledger technology while complying with legacy laws and not annoying the regulator. It's a really interesting tension. It seems like the benefits of security tokens are there, but actually the ability to capture those benefits, you know, there's a number of challenges and not least of all, having everybody understand that shift from the analog paper process to how much analog paper process do I need to keep to comply with the regulations? Yes. And what could I do yes. if the, the regulations were a, a little bit more malleable to, yeah. to what the technology enabled for the benefit of consumers, for the benefit of society? Yes. So in no way to reduce the quality, actually to increase the quality yes. of market fairness and efficiency. So how do you think about the regulation in this space? Is it, is it challenging? Is it differing globally? Like what, what, are, the, yeah. what are the issues? So I'll talk about my experience, and I've had a very, very positive experience with the FCA to date. We've been speaking to them for nearly 12 months. 
our multilateral trading facility application is in yeah. and the speed at which they've assigned as the case manager, the speed at which they've come back with questions and feedback and the diligence they've shown uh, has exceeded my expectations and it's really good to see. And they're asking all the right questions, especially around custody as well. So as a digital venue that will be regulated, something that makes us different from traditional finances, we will also be custody and customer assets. The FCA has to ask questions around how you're going to get your permissions and how you're going to act as a custodian. So that's, that, that, that's been very interesting. I think an advantage we have uh, here in Europe uh, versus the US is um, more, uh, more of a general understanding and regulators working together in Europe. My impression and understanding is in the US there's a bit of tension between the regulators there and they're still trying, kind of, trying to work that out. It's, it's an interesting challenge. So where do you think this space is all going to go if you start looking in your crystal ball? Yep. Uh, the, the one big thing that you hear the people on Twitter pumping the market saying is the institutions are coming, the institutions are coming. Given that's your background yes. institutionally, yep. which institutions and where? Yeah, yeah. So for an institution to deal with a counterparty, a counterparty needs to have all the appropriate regulation. They need to be structured properly. They need to be in the most credible jurisdiction they can. And they need to tick all the boxes for that, that, for that institution's risk and compliance department to get happy. So I think uh, institutions will start to put significant amounts of money with, in the digital asset space when regulation is clearer. And that's coming. I, I don't know how uh, the, the FCA consultation paper that was released in January and the response will be out in the summer. I've got high hopes for that because we were involved in the consultation process. But when there's more regulatory clarity around Bitcoin utility security tokens, then there'll be a firmer footing for institutions to start to get involved. But institutions also need regulated custody. Yes. Big asset managers have fiduciary duty to take client funds and put them in safe places. And that was one of the issues we had at the hedge fund I was at previously. There's no way, there's no realistic way that us as a $1.4 billion asset manager could raise $50 million from investors in a Cayman fund and put that money with uh, exchanges that were not in credible jurisdictions and, yeah. didn't, and didn't have regulated uh, custody. It's, it's just not possible. Yeah. So that needs to happen, and, it, and it's starting to happen. You, you've seen BitGo in the US get qualified custodian status. You've seen a DACC that was close to getting it be acquired by BACT. It's, it's such an important part of it. For an institution to even look at you, you have to know that if they give you your assets, they're safe. Yeah, that's a really powerful thing. So custody is another conversation in its own right. It is. Uh, listen, thank you so much for joining. Um, uh, where can people find out more about you and Archax? Sure, so our website is www.archax.com. Uh, please check it out and you can send me an email, matthew at archax.com if you have any questions. Thank you so much for being on Blockchain Insider. You're very welcome, thank you. Alrighty, thank you so much, Matthew. And uh, well, it seems a few weeks ago we were at Money 2020 now, uh, but uh, gr great interview nonetheless. Uh, just a reminder, listeners, this podcast is brought to you by 11FS, and we're a challenger consultancy working to shape the next generation of financial services. Uh, and we also create truly digital propositions, working really hard with banks, big techs, and all kinds of companies uh, who want to get products live and who want to solve the real practical problems of, of how you actually execute. Uh, if you want to hear more Blockchain Insider every single Thursday, well, hit the subscribe button um, and throw us a review. Uh, that would be most, most awesome, uh, especially because Colin G. Platt is going to Barcelona. Um, anybody who's heading there, you might see a wandering Colin G. Platt. Uh, where can people find out more about you so that they can stalk you, Colin? 
So they can stalk me. Well, uh, they could try on Twitter at Colin G. Platt, or they could go to Barcelona to the Bitcoin trading conference. That's a good place to be. And you can find me at SYTaylor on Twitter uh, or email me, Simon, at 11FS.com. A uh, big thank you to our production team here at 11FS, producer Laura, Petra, and Hannah, and of course, Alex, our editor. Uh, thank you for listening. We'll have more Blockchain Insider next week. Goodbye for now. <laughs>